Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-DM, McGill. And we are here on the 22nd of July. Uh, McGill telling me that he's got his second vaccine shot today, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Basically, when we're done recording, I'm going to rush off to the clinic and get my shot. I actually just got an email today telling me to move my shot up. Or, if I felt like it, just go to a clinic and walk in. Because apparently there's thousands of places all over the province where I could do that. Quoting... Nice. Exactly. They said thousands. And I was like, okay. So I, I can get that sorted uh, when... When we're done with this, I guess. It's pretty, um, uh, it's it's kind of funny because in Prince Edward Island, where I am, uh, rather than do the sort of first come, first serve thing, like I know that in Ontario, after they got all the sort of senior citizen vaccinations out of the way, uh, they started opening it up more and you could just sort of go to whatever clinics were around you. I know in some areas it was like, clinics that would only serve certain postal codes and things like that but it was a real kind of like you know just find a clinic and get there and you can get your shot a lot of my friends that was the case where they were like oh man there's a pop-up clinic really close to my place and so i'm just gonna go now and get my shot and uh in pei the way they did it is uh when it opened up to your age bracket you could book an appointment with an online calendar and then when you get your first shot, they like enter you into their database and then they text you to let you know when your follow up appointment is. And uh, so you really had no control. It was just like you'd get a text. and It would be like your follow up, your second shot appointment is on this date. And then uh, a funny thing happened where they were doing that for a while. It's been working really great. The vaccine rollout here is, is pretty good overall. And. Uh, I'm the last person in my household to get their second shot. And yesterday they changed the rules. So now you can just bump up your shot or take whatever appointment is available. You don't have to wait. <laughs> I was like, well, <laughs> I can't get it earlier than the next day after they open up the, the regulations. So there it is. You're the, you're the guy they invented flying cars right after you died. Um, oh gosh <laughs> or right after i learn how to fly yeah true um yeah so i the way you described it is actually how it happened for me at first and i had just been going along with that i was like well whatever i'm gonna get a text whatever and then they sent me an email so all good um it is episode 71 of comparing campaign and we are continuing to tell the tales of in mcgill's case of his greyhawk campaign in which a plague is unfolding and it's based on the fate of istis so it's destiny of istis meanwhile i am telling tales of my campaign uh al's aces which is the sequel to mpox finest and uh yeah, my, my players in, in my game that I'm describing are right in the thick of it, deep behind enemy lines in the heart, 
you know, in the belly of the beast, as it were. That's right. They're still off in, uh, was it Citra Arha? Citra Arha. You're learning your weird occult terms. You can show up to some, uh, you know, group of weirdos that say all words in unison and then uh, look like you know something. <laughs> That's right. I showed up to choir practice and started spouting occult lore, and they all looked at me funny. Uh, I guess that's one way of interpreting choir practice. I'm more thinking about, like, you know, I I read about, like, these weird... I should... Not weird, but, like, I, I, I guess they're weird. Um, like, occult groups and whatnot. There's one in, like, that originated in Sweden called uh, Dragon, Dragon Rouge or something. Um, anyway, the point is... Uh, a lot of this stuff, like, like they, they talk about Citra Arha and they talk about all these um, terms and stuff and, like, the power of the dark side and whatever. Um, and I, I read it was, like, basically some guy's big paper or, like, study of this group, basically. Like, he this guy um, did a sort of, uh, you know thesis or something um we you know where he basically documented like so i went to this ritual and i like did this uh sort of apprenticeship program or whatever to like learn what their whole deal is and um i just like i remember reading through it and like there's a certain there's a certain element in that context where it's like it's all kind of like scholarly and it's like huh this is interesting just kind of like uh, analyzing the the rituals and beliefs of this sort of like a small sect and then like eventually you get to the point where the guy's like documenting a ritual where it's just like a bunch of people in a room all saying like one guy says plumbus and the others all go plumbus like <laughs> <laughs> that's that's funny man the greater um, good the greater good by Vectron's kindly claw. <laughs> I still I like the Vectron. idea that they say Plumbus or Pickle Rick. Pickle Rick. <laughs> That's just what um, Rick and Morty fans are like now, though. Oh, man. I, I don't know. I guess. You know, I was in Fortnite of, uh, before this. Basically, I was playing a hot game of Fortnite before I got... Uh, I had to go and inspect this drain... Um, that I'm trying to declog in my bathroom. Uh, but in that Fortnite game, I was on like the starting island and I was checking out people's skins. And one guy just like fully decked out in the new Rick Sanchez stuff. And I was like, really? Really, man? You got the freaking Hammer Morty harvesting tool. You got the freaking butter robot on your back. It's just, ugh, I guess he's a Rick and Morty fan. Um, you know what else is in Fortnite now is Ferrari. I get into I get into Fortnite today, and it's like officially the new Ferrari is in Fortnite because that's where the money's at. Fortnite is just Ready Player One, right? Like that's what I know. We've talked about this before, but it seems like it's really becoming that. I don't know if we mentioned. Um, 
Well, yeah, and speaking of, LeBron James is in Fortnite now, so you oh, know, got that God. Space Jam Well, crossover. I mean, that makes sense. Rick and Morty is in the new Space Jam, so why not LeBron it's all, and Fortnite? It's all in the Ready Player One. It's all in the in the metaverse. Um, did you... Uh, I did. Did we talk about um, there was the the court battle between Apple and Epic, and it was revealed that Fortnite had made like, God, what was it, eight billion dollars in its two years of existence? I knew about this, but we did not talk about it. Well, I I just like man, <laughs> a lot of money, a lot of money. All I'm saying, For, Ferrari's like, oh, we should start making our cars for fake people in a fake world. Cause that's where the real money's at. <laughs> yeah, that's where the real money is. So yeah, now I was tr- I was trying to you know it's tough to get a Ferrari at this point because there's all these like challenges that you need a Ferrari to do. So everybody's fighting over who gets them. And I uh, right now the season is like alien invasion season. So I actually grabbed a UFO early on and just went around using my tractor beam to pick up people in Ferraris and then fucking throw them off the map. It was hilarious. <laughs> Why would you want a Ferrari if you can have a UFO with a tractor beam? It also shoots big, like, slow-moving plasma bolts or whatever. And it has, yeah, it's, I don't know. It doesn't have a lot of health, but the Ferrari goes real fast. The thing about the UFO, though, is, like, it doesn't have a lot of health, but then, like, when it gets knocked out of health, it, like, crashes, but then it, like, rapidly heals itself, and then you can, like, get back into the air. I don't know, man. Well, I'm gonna. I'm just getting off into a whole Fortnite thing now. Got to stop. Got to get. I know. I'm pretty sure I made you do the thing first last time. So I'm gonna jump into Operation Omnipotent Chaos. How's yeah, that do for it. an operation name? Omnipotent pr- Chaos. Sounds pretty. Uh, pretty epic. It certainly promises something pretty big. Um, so when we left off, Alzaces. They had just escaped uh, the realm of Citra Arha of worships with the lich, or, or rather the vampire master of that realm, Rex, the sort of cyborg goblin, uh, chasing behind them with a, a hefty entourage of security after they had, uh, you know, been skulking around in his labs, committing sabotage and stealing data and whatnot. And... They'd managed to grab all sorts of stuff um, from the labs and whatnot. But as I had mentioned, you know, they're Dungeons & Dragons characters. They don't know how to hack a thing, whatnot, whatever. But now they're on the run. They've got some key things. They've got, like, key data cubes and, and, and drives and whatnot. And and weird printed off some, like, weird codes and stuff they don't understand. Just grabbing what they can got out of worships now they're back into sort of the weird network that connects the different realms of citra arha sort of long um long space station like corridors this things like that but now they're in trouble because there is a security alert out for them uh after their cover was blown in worships because of uh you know they Basically, they I, I, I don't know if I mentioned this also. Um, they had managed to extract uh, 
someone who was like in the process of being turned into an undead through one of these like processing pods and extracting that victim um for intel purposes and theoretically to try and save them though they were pretty far gone at that point um the that was what caused the sort of like original security breach was like they extracted the victim um that caused like a malfunction which started a fire everything sort of like all hell broke loose suddenly they're fighting through the emergency uh response and the security um they get to like the data centers and the archives they grab what they can the security and rex is is close behind them and they escape but they also um I seem to remember them also. Right. I remember now. Sorry. Um, so they get into these in the into this sort of like big corridor network, just the sort of passages between uh, the different realms of Citra Arha. And they there's a security alert out for them. So they run into some enemy security and they fight them. But after the first encounter with some enemy security, they then run into their old pal Gutbones. Uh known Good by old various gut names. Bones. But Gutbones mysteriously is like, Hey, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, Gutbones, fancy seeing you here. Nothing unusual, suspicious about this. Who knows? <laughs> um and gut bones once again nothing unusual or suspicious about that this he's just like very helpful he's like hey you got all those crazy devices you don't know how they work i'll help you learn how to use them and he basically like shows them like how to access the data cubes that they have he like hacks he basically helps them hack all the stuff that they have and like figure out how to use it and it's like there are some there are various skill checks that they have to do in order to actually sort of like understand all that's being shown to them. But the point is like the gap is bridged there in their knowledge by gut bones, like just going out of his way to assist them in getting the Intel that they had uh, accessed. And the other thing was that um, they they cut so so basically their situation with gut bones at this point was like well now you know there's a security alert we've just been chased out of warships we need to figure out how we're going to get the hell out of here and gut bones is like oh yeah i i can help with that i can figure out a, a path to get you on out of citra arha um and they're like oh cool so you know how to get out of here it's like yeah yeah sure and they're like okay well can you take this victim and also send it to like our portal coordinates, basically like basically send it back to the MPOC. And he agreed to do that. And that was something that they were kind of like, well, I guess we'll find out later if he actually does it or not. Um, but he did actually, as far as I know, Gutbones did like Gutbones was entirely helpful here. Basically. Um, he helped them, figure out their data and then when they wanted to like hand off this victim so they weren't dragging it around everywhere uh he agreed to like sort of send it back to the coordinates they had um because as i've talked about before mpoc has this whole sort of like teleportation coordinate 
uh, sequences that they use. And so they would have one that they're using to like as their home base, basically to get back to the portal chamber um, at the MPOC base. So uh, while Gut Bones goes and does that, they continue on through um, a couple more areas of the sort of between spaces of Citra Arha. Uh, they end up going to sort of an outpost point between various points or realms of Citra Arha. I'm including another uh, map as well in the comparingcampaign.wordpress uh, notes for this episode. Uh, just another sort of less sketchy, uh, larger map of the sort of Citra Arha network. But um, you can look at that, but basically in one of the sort of like just unlabeled line points or circle points in that network, um, they find another outpost. And also after that, they find another sort of like archive space. Um, but once they got to this place, they were able to, with the help of what Gutbones taught taught them in terms of like using, um, like interfacing with the technology that was here in Citra Arha that the Nightside Eclipse uses, um, using that and also decent sort of deception roles and that sort of thing, they were able to get to these uh, these new areas, these outposts and archives, and just sort of like act casual, return to their their cover of like, oh, we're just extra planar mercenaries. Um, we're just looking for work, that kind of thing. Um, when they were hit by like security checkpoints and stuff or like questioned by drones or like any of the sort of servitor uh, units that were in these outposts, um, Chessie was basically able to like make up like a security ID for herself, basically. They'd be like, hey, what's your what's your clearance or whatever? And she just sort of like like from her memory of the stuff that Gutbones had shown her through, she'd be like, uh one A three zero A A three uh four. And they'd be like, uh, all right. Uh, we'll <laughs> we'll run that. And like they're like, okay, we got a little bit of time a to get through of here. numbers, and they're like, uh, shoot, we didn't expect her to have any answers, so we'll I just mean, get back to you on that one. <laughs> she's just like trying to make up something based on like the sequence that she has already seen. So yeah, it's basically it's like, oh, okay, we're gonna have to go run that code, whatever. And like, uh, since they are theoretically like these new extra planar mercenaries that just came from Nespyth. They're not even like they have a decent amount of leeway with their cover at this point. So basically after escaping that initial like security alert, they get to this outpost and then this archive and they're just sort of like acting casual. And again, they're just going around. They're like using the, at this point they have more of an idea of how to interface with like the computers and technology in these areas. And so they don't even need to like interact with the other knights at Eclipse in these areas. They just sort of go around. If questioned, they sort of like brush them off like that. And then they continue just sort of like gathering Intel, gathering data, trying to get whatever they can 
for this this sort of spy mission within Citra Arha. Um, then, continuing on from uh, after they get through that initial outpost where they sort of bluff their way through, and then another archive space where they're able to like basically hack and get more of the uh what am i trying to say that more of the data that they are looking for um oh something important about that as well uh in hacking the outpost when they stopped there they managed to get access to like a critical password basically which is gonna also help them a lot in terms of like you know bluffing their way through but also getting access to the various like data stores uh available to them in the, in Citra Arha here. I've remarked on this before, but I really have, I find it very entertaining that you're doing just sort of full-on mission impossible but in in D&D and not even like necessarily in a, a rooted D&D &D setting, but like it's just full-on mission impossible. They're like hacking stuff and forging security clearances and behind enemy lines it's pretty cool it's funny too because like i don't know with mission impossible i don't know i guess i'm tending to think of like you know the the dossier you know the mission in the dossier the whole like your mission should you choose to accept it this is like this is a bit more fly by the seat of your pants like once they were in citra arha they're uh, but that's like that's like, the whole deal with Mission Impossible, though, is they get their mission and then it all goes wrong and they got to right. like improvise their way back out of it. It's just like they didn't have any like hacking training or anything. They all they're learning this all like as they go and their general objectives as they went into enemy lines was just like, you know, find out what you like gather intel uh map the place if you can like figure out how it works um sabotage if you can that all all like like you know general objectives basically i think i probably have them uh written here somewhere right infiltrate spy map sabotage that's uh that's that's your big ones um that that's your objectives which are pretty general but um, then after they manage to access the records in the archives again, and they've got the password from the security outpost that they got past as well, um, they uh, run into Gutbones again. And he's like, all right, so uh, I figure I, I dealt with your your victim, whatever. Also, um, and this was basically like their last chance to take any sort of rest uh, for a while. He was like, you know, if, if you want to take a little break and recuperate, you know, we'll lay low in one of these security, like, like one of these maintenance passages or whatever. Um, but I've figured out your like plan of escape, basically. And he gives them a map that has been like edited basically so that he has like a line of escape drawn on it and um the trick about gut bones's map out of citra arha is that it requires them to pass through the very core of citra arha 
which, as I've mentioned before, is the home of the Omni Lich, the very highest form of the Nightside Eclipse. Um, and I've included images of what the Omni Lich uh, sort of is imagined as looking like in the doodles that I included for our supplemental notes. But I also, in pointing to those those doodles, I also want to recall uh, the Demi Lich that uh, Mpok's Finest fought when they were rescuing the Goblin Princess Remy back in Mpok's Finest. Uh, that So Demi Liches are generally just like a skull. It's like a floating skull that's like super powerful. But the Nightside Eclipse Demi Lich that they ran into once they had discovered the Nightside Eclipse's sort of robot, like robotics projects, um, was like basically sort of like, <clears throat> like a wire mesh sphere that like these cable tentacles would come out of and that's then these... right we we talked about this didn't we because i was yeah. ta i think i talked to you about a chain golem that my players had encountered in some uh adventure that was similar yeah we definitely talked about this when they faced that demi lich boss back in mpox finest but the reason i mention this now is because like this the the omni lich doodles look very abstract unless you know that the Nightside Eclipse Demi Liches are designed like that, basically. Like, in the second image I've included, there's the Omni Lich with then some, like, Demi Liches in orbit around it. But it's basically, like, the Omni Lich is, like, a big one of those spheres with just, like, sort of energy surrounding it rather than any, like, tendrils or anything. And then orbiting around it in this doodle you see like the demi liches that are the weird sort of spheres with the cables coming out of them it's a very sort of like sci-fi like space amoeba looking situation um and it does help to give an idea of like once you get to the omni lich you're reaching a sort of like you know um less of a corporeal undead form like a lich and more like a weird sort of sci-fi energy-based uh ultimate being basically that just has the sort of like core uh and the rest of it is less substantial um so Given the instructions by gut, gut Bones, they continue. They, of course, they don't really have uh, a lot of insight yet into what they're going into, but they'll figure it out soon enough. Um, so, in traveling into the like the core realm of the Omni Lich, which is you know doesn't have a unique name, it just is the Omni Lich. Um, they find themselves. Uh, sort of ascending to the Omni Lich. They, they start in this kind of uh, maintenance passage, which gives them access into the realm of the Omni Lich. Um, also, uh, as I get into talking about ascending to the Omni Lich, I should mention uh, the Dungeons & Dragons expedition that I used for content for this one was... Uh, the Drowned Tower from Season 2, 
which honestly, I don't remember a whole lot about. I think that this operation and the next one, um, as much as I took from the original modules from the Adventurers League, uh, I think I was pretty heavy into like fleshing out this unique Nightside Eclipse setting, especially like since this was sort of like the core of it. Um, I used like in ascending to the Omni Lich, I think I used the uh, sort of structure of like, since it's the, uh, the drowned tower, the idea of like, a tower structure but apart from that like um there's not a lot that i remember about the context of the original modules just because like i was kind of leaning more into like uh my original stuff at this point with citra arha and introducing these concepts like the omni lich and, and the realms of citra arha so um as they're ascending the omni lich though they find that uh, in accordance with what I was saying about the, the Omni Lich sort of being a more energy-based or even like negative energy-based um, sort of void-born, uh, insubstantial entity, um, as they are ascending this realm towards the Omni Lich, uh, they are running they're they're running into like insubstantial reality basically like they're having trouble finding their footing like the ground like reality is getting all world all, all weird around them um they're occasionally running into like glyph of warning traps that sort of thing basically to sort of like ward them off as they continue to get closer to the omni lich itself um i also introduced a unique enemy at this point which was um nanobot swarms which i think i was either using the template for like quipper swarms or like an insect swarm but whatever the case the idea was that was just like uh sort of a creepy um like lifeless ai gone wrong uh element as they like get further towards the omni lich um they're also at this point like there's no way to like lay low like on their path they're running into guard checkpoints that are just like you know they're in the they're in the heart of it like they have to fight their way through at this point um and uh also i i just wanted to say that i also used a black pudding at one point in here and i do like black puddings First of all, like, black puddings are always good in sort of, like, a ruin setting. I know that in Ashes Against the Grain, I had you go up against that. Um, yeah, the idea I had that to, just like, had, between games, I had to chase it out of the ruins because I wanted to set up shop there. Yeah, and so, like, the idea that, black, like, black puddings just sort of, like, hang around in ruined places and, like, slowly corrode through things. Um, but I particularly like that in like a technological setting i i particularly like when there's like i've definitely used this before but like having the characters get onto like an elevator and then have the black pudding like leak through the roof of the elevator down onto them or something like that's i just really like the sort of image of like this corrosive slime 
that they run into while they're going through this sort of like sci-fi setting. Um, then, uh, as they are at the closest point of the Omni Lich, they run into sort of uh, a lab stationed beneath the Omni Lich, uh, in which they encounter negative energy elementals, which they had encountered before back in Nespyth. Um, but also they ran into bone weirds, which if you know water weirds, you know, these are like water weirds, but made out of bones and they do appear in return to, they do return, uh, appear in the return to the tomb of horrors, just like negative energy elementals. Um, both of them, I mean, both of them are just like, I'm sure that in the original context, the drowned tower, the bone weird like i'm sure that it was a water weird and i'm sure that it was a water elemental but it's great that i think that return to the tomb of horrors provides perfect like negative energy plane or uh necro versions of these like classic elemental uh enemies so bone weirds negative energy elementals and then finally uh after fighting their way through all the security and everything getting through the weird like chaotic breakdown footing of the uh like deteriorating reality around the omni lich um and finally they get through that lab and get to the Omni Lich itself. And basically they come out it like over time I guess this is becoming more and more like when Neo goes into the machine world in Matrix Revolutions. You know that? Yeah, you know, now that you mention that, I can totally see it. It including sort of the idea of the the Omni Lich being this overseer it's like that big nanobot face that neo encounters yeah um like i guess i hadn't thought of it but that is like the image to conjure here because they come out to like the the actual omni lich itself and they're basically in this huge like sort of high-tech grid and hanging over them is like this planet-sized like that weird cable mesh demi lich shape that i was telling you about it's just like there's a massive one of it that just has like planet sized huh yeah and it just has like technological debris floating around it and like storms Whoa. of energy and like electricity and stuff and then it sends these like massive um cables down which uh i basically use the stats of like a hydra except that with the idea that like its heads could strike at them like no matter where they were basically so the players come out into this grid and it's like all right now you have to get past the omni lich um there's a couple of go of bone weirds in the grid uh as well as like a sort of nightside eclipse priest who was wielding the magic item the trident of warding warning sorry um but they have to like get past these bone weirds and this priest while this like all powerful entity is like striking down at them with these massive like cables that are basically like hydra head strikes. Um, 
And what's funny is that, you know, the idea was not for them to fight the Omni Lich, basically. But uh, Chessie's player was, or really Chessie, was feeling like particularly cocky about this fight. Like they did run <laughs> off rather than fight the Omni Lich. But as they left, Chessie was like, I think I could take it. I I, I think I could have <laughs> taken it. It's the size of a planet. <laughs> the, well, the funny thing is that what Chessie was realizing was like, you know, it was doing these like huge tentacle strikes, but then Chessie's like AC and dexterity were so good that she was constantly able to just like dodge them. And, you know, the, the, the thing was that all she could really do is like dodge the tentacles and then like stab them with her sword. And like, really that's not going to destroy the Omni Lich. Let's be reasonable. But like, it's, it's basically a Borg sphere. Let's, let's be honest. Um, you know, maybe, maybe a, a planet is, is too big, but like, you know, I, I was mentioning the Death Star before. That's another, you know, spherical uh, sci-fi thing. Anyway, um, so they fight their way through and they just like rush through the grid and like their path is just like run past the Omni Lich to the other side, basically, and then escape to a maintenance tunnel there and then continue on your way. I think actually... Um, it might not it might have even been a portal they had to go through from the Omni Lich uh realm rather than just like continuing through a tunnel. Uh because they ended up uh going to the next realm uh pretty directly. But uh yeah, and in defeating the Nightside Eclipse priest uh that was uh with the Omni Lich, um Arakendor managed to grab uh the um trident of warning off him as a uh, magic item which you know what's more appropriate for a cleric of poseidon than a trident makes perfect sense man so they that escaped is some wild the wrath stuff of the omni lich and uh yeah on um, their they're ostensibly on their way out i want to know if they ever go up against the omni lich but i guess that would be spoiling things i will say that this is the only time that anyone has ever gone face to face with the omni lich cool it's not the only Jesse's time. Like, Jesse's like, I could take him. <laughs> it's it's not the only time that anyone has ever seen the Omni Lich with their eyes. I'll say that. <laughs> I guess I, I can say there is a return to Citra Arha, and they don't like go to the Omni Lich realm, but since it is so huge, there are points in Citra Arha where you can see the Omni Lich as the like, you know, like it's it's the sun at the core of their system. Well, yeah, I mean, if it's the size of a planet, it's hard to miss, I'd imagine. But I mean, it's also, this is the whole thing of like, like, it's so difficult to like communicate the scale of Citra Arha 
Because, like... I mean, I guess the players are, like, in Al's Ace's case, they are, like, directly moving through, like, maintenance corridor to maintenance corridor and traveling, like, via portal and whatnot. And it's still taking them, like, you know, I'd say that this operation, they probably spent two or three days getting from, like, warships through the Omni Lich. Um, but, uh... Yeah, it's it's also like there's this sense of like, cause cause I said the Omnilich is the size of a planet, but like I guess also the thing to understand about it is like, um, it's very far away. Like it's not like right above them. It's like they can see it high in orbit with all this stuff orbiting around it and all these like energy storms and whatnot, and then these like massive like tentacles just sort of shoot down from the sky down at them. But yeah, I don't know. I guess planet planet is maybe too big. But like I feel like Borg sphere is probably probably it's still safe. really big. Yeah, exactly. That's no moon. That's exactly. the Omnilich. Exactly. That's what I'm trying to trying to do here. Learning about like, like the the sort of the big boss, uh, Omnilich within Citra Arha, and like they've gone behind enemy lines, and they're infiltrating uh, the Nightside Eclipse, sort of other realm HQ. Uh, all of this makes me really curious about sort of where the overall campaign is is going, what the grand sort of arc of the plot is going to be, and I know that. I, I don't know if you've planned it all, but I know that you haven't, you're far from having run this whole thing. Uh, so I'm just, I, I don't know. Uh, already I'm going like, is anybody, are they ever going to actually face off against the Omni Lich? Is the, the big sort of multi-session final encounter going to be fighting the Omni Lich? And if you take out the Omni Lich, does it take out all the Nightside Eclipse? I got a lot of questions, Tom. Does another lich just come up and take its place? Yeah. Like, Where do they come though? from? Well, you know, I, oh man, we're going to cover that next time. Oh. You know, okay. actually, I've, I've mentioned the, the place they come from, the world that they come from, the, the Nightside Eclipse, where they were like the ultimate supremacy in their world, uh, the Giga Lich. Mentioned that before, right? Yeah. So I'll I'll let you know that uh next episode Al's Aces find that the portal takes them from the Omni Lich to the Giga Lich. The Giga Lich. Just the the prefix Giga always makes me chuckle to myself because of uh there's that Perry Bible Fellowship comic, the Giga Knight. You do you know that one? Uh the thing is that I've read all of them, but I don't remember all this of them. This one just always cracks me up. It's, uh, there's like a knight on horseback and he's clearly like getting ready to joust. He's got a big lance and he, he goes like, so Sir Giga, you think that just because you are a knight of the realm, you can defeat. And he's like cut off mid sentence as a missile shaped like a lance impales him. And then the final panel is this, like, beefed-up robotic knight, and the crowd is going, Giga Knight! Giga Knight! 
All that makes me think of is the one, um, the the one that's just like a bunch of people in a movie theater, and on the screen there's like a guy on a on like a hover motorbike hitting a guy like on a there's like a knight with a lance on like a flying motorbike hitting like a dinosaur and then it shows the outside of the theater and it says now playing world war ii <laughs> <laughs> it's all these future people <laughs> man that comic's the best i don't think i've That's ever really found cool. anything that that compares so Take us down to Greyhawk, my friend. We spent so, enough time in this horrible Omnilich world. So this is uh, sort of like the second part of the adventure that the players were on last time. Uh, in Jurner, Jurn with an unnecessary R. Jurner. And uh, they had been sent there by the Order of Istis uh, to try and... Uh, basically beseech this count there who this count is a cleric and he has an amulet that has been said to be able to ward off or even cure the plague of the red death and so they were sent there to meet with the count but they arrived uh early basically they arrived before he had returned from some travel that he was on and uh in spending some time exploring jern they were attacked by Morgarath, who, and uh, you know, this avatar that is being controlled alternately by uh, Istis and Yuz as sort of like a, a game piece in their grand game that they're playing. And uh, Morgarath can take multiple forms. So he took all these different forms to just mess around with the players and finally out and out attacked them. And they pursued uh, him into the woods across the river from Jern and then thwarted an ambush that he was trying to uh, perpetrate against the Count, uh, who was in the process of returning to Jern. And things ended with them thwarting the ambush attempt and fighting Morgarath, but Morgarath got away. And so... Uh, at the start of this session, the players had. Can I just? Uh, I I where there was a couple of things I wanted to say that I forgot. Yeah. Uh, first of all, our previous episode, I said that the Modron in Planescape Torment was voiced by Frank Az Hank Azaria. I was wrong. It was Dan Castellaneta. I had my damn. Oh, it was a wrong Simpson Simpsons voice wrong. actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you could see how that would happen. Uh, Joe. The other, yeah, exactly. The other thing. <laughs> I was going to say was that you um, were asking about where the arc of Al's aces is headed. And I did want to say that one thing that is very central to the Al's aces arc um, that hasn't been too central recently, but they've been around is I keep mentioning the autumn leaves, the like anti empoch that the night side eclipses. Yeah. Formed. That is very much like a uh, part of the arc, I would say. Cool. Okay. That and where is Odium? Have you seen uh, a movie called The Night Comes for Us? Yes. Yes. Yeah. You told me to watch it. I watched it. It's a badass movie. And uh, 
there's something in that movie where they don't like go into it. The whole movie is about like the the most badass killers working for different factions. Like the main guys are primarily uh, triads, I believe. But there are all these different factions of assassins who come into play. And I, I can't remember, but there's like a a squad of female assassins. There's a particularly awesome fight scene between three of them. And they have some name like the Autumn Leaves. It's something along the, like the Lotus Blossom or something like that. Whenever you say the Autumn Leaves as this squad of specialized assassins, I'm reminded of The Night Comes for Us. The Autumn Leaves uh, had a had a motto that they would say uh, if they were interrogated and stuff. Uh, they would say, only a matter of time. Hmm. It's only a matter of time. I could see that backfiring, though, because someone will be like, when are you going to tell us everything we want to know? And they'll be like, only a matter of time. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think with the Nightside Eclipse, it's more like the warning of like, oh, you're all going to die someday. Can't escape <laughs> death. Badass. Anyway, so uh, the players uh, now are they've they are able to meet with the Count. He escorts them back to uh, his keep. He has, you know, he doesn't have a full castle. He just has sort of like a, a small keep where he resides within Jern. And they have an audience with him and explain the whole situation. And he agrees uh, for the greater good, he will allow the Order of Istis to temporarily utilize his magic healing amulet. Uh, but he, it's interesting because he demands collateral like something left in exchange and i don't have it in my notes what the players left i wish i could remember what it was but they left him a different magical item that wasn't like totally crucial to their quest okay so it, could... it wasn't it wasn't mave's coin uh no it wasn't mave's coin they had on because he just offered, like, he just said, like, you have to leave me some form of collateral so that I know you will come back and bring back my amulet when you're done. And I really wish I could remember what the heck it was. I, if, I, if I went through my archives and found their character sheets, I could probably figure it out because I'm sure on one of their character sheets in their equipment, they've got like a little asterisk next to it. But the maybe, point is... Uh, maybe the... Because they were fashioned something for saving that village back in the like the time they saved the village in the sort oh, right, of like, from the trolls montage. yeah they saved a village from the trolls maybe it might have been that and the blacksmith forged them something to like show that they were the heroes but they could have just handed that over I'm going to have to, you know, now now I have no excuse. I really got to pull out the character sheets and see if I can figure it out. I'm just saying there's two possible guesses that I think would be satisfying within this narrative thus far, based on what the audience knows. Yeah, both of those things are, would be totally fine, and they're they're well set up. But the point being, they've sort of accomplished this part of their mission. They managed to uh, negotiate with the Count and get access to his amulet, and they go like, okay, you know, we're going to bring this back to the Order. But they're still hung up on Morgarath. Their encounter with Morgarath, this animal man, they don't like that he got away, 
And they are, the, at this point, the players are really sort of cluing in, like, there is some, something is going on that we are unaware of that where forces sort of beyond our perception are messing with us. I would and just say, I if I were them, I would totally suspect that Morgoth was the woman selling the portraits and one of the people selling the fake amulets. Of the con artists as well. And I believe that crossed their mind, but they were like, you know, whoever this guy is, he is close by. He may have turned into a bird and flown away uh, after the ambush attempt, but he obviously is around here. And so they were like, we got to do our due diligence and see if we can actually figure out who this is and track him down and maybe track him to see where he's going next. So they head back out into the forest where the ambush took place and uh, they meet up with the centaurs. Uh, they had met one of the centaurs last adventure uh, as he was, uh, he was sort of drunk and was buying loads and loads of wine to take back to his centaur buddies. And so they meet up with the, the centaurs and uh, ask for their help. And they all sort of spread out. And the, the centaurs, I had them, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them uh, were rangers. And so using the, the ranger skills and also Eric's ranger skills, they're able to sort of spread out in the immediate area of the forest and start tracking and just seeing if they can find any clue as to where this animal man went and uh they find they do find evidence that he's been hiding out in this big hollowed out tree they find various sets of tracks and also as they approach this tree that has this big hollow in the center uh, a bunch of birds fly out of it and then fly away and they're like okay okay so birds are nesting in this tree he turns into a bird we have tracks of different animals coming from all vaguely the same direction to this area and uh, so they're as they're investigating they start hearing noise of another big animal sort of coming through the thicket in their direction and out of the underbrush comes a big brown bear and at first, they're like, oh, my God, it's him again. And so, like, they brace for an attack. But the bear is just sort of a lazy bear. It's the middle of the day, and it's sort of like autumn at this point. So it's just sort of a lazy, lumbering bear. And it doesn't, like, show major hostility to them. It's sort of alerted by their presence, but it doesn't seem like it's about to attack. And so Stash starts talking to animals and uses, uh, at some point or other... When she was like looting an area, she had picked up a big hunk of cheese. And so she offers this cheese to the bear and using her talking to animals ability, just sort of is like, hey, come on over here. I'll give you some cheese. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about what's been going on in the woods these days. Uh, what's and the bear cheese? exactly is like, oh, all right, I'll have some cheese and like sits no, on I, its haunches. Mine was, uh, what's cheese? <laughs> your food sounds good i'll eat it and um and it works and this sort of friendly dopey bear just kind of sits down and uh shoots the breeze with stash while eating a big chunk of cheese and they find I want out the boar i want the bear and snort to be friends 
<laughs> I don't think it comes to pass, but the bear does like become their friend. Uh, maybe in a future game, if they return to this region with Snort, they'll uh, they will make them friends. Uh, there's certainly no reason uh, that it couldn't happen. Um, so they they befriend the bear and ask him some questions and. The bear reveals that, like, yeah, weird stuff's been going on. There are all these different animals in the area that that are he's never seen before. They only started showing up in the past month, and there's, like, a wide variety. But the weird thing is that they all smell the same. They don't smell like different animals. They all just smell the same, and they keep coming back to this tree. And he's like, I can even smell, like, that same smell is in the air right now as we sit around. So they spend a lot of time here. And Stash has this epiphany where she goes like, you know, there are those dogs in the market that told me that they were smelling something really strange as well. So why don't we go back to the market and see maybe those dogs are still there or maybe we can just sort of investigate yeah, the area. they were barking at that like fat merchant or something, right? That's right. They were barking at the fat merchant and the party had followed the fat merchant to his boat in the harbor and they just sort of like took note of that boat and like where he went, but he wasn't really up to anything suspicious besides the dogs being like that. There's something weird going on with that guy. Uh, so they had left it, but they were like, oh yeah, that's right. There's that merchant and we know exactly where his boat is hitched up. So they head back to Jern to the Harbor District. And by this point, it's like nightfall. And so they... They sneak into the harbor and stake out the boat and they wait a little bit and they just don't see any sign of anybody on the boat. And so, and so they all decide like, okay, we're going in. We're going to see what's on this boat. And uh, this was, I will say, as sort of like a preamble to this part of it, uh, this was where the party made a running joke of the fact that whenever Maeve gets on a boat or any kind of watercraft, shit goes down. <laughs> It happened with uh, Relt Seavord. It's going to happen again. So they uh, they get on the boat, and the first thing that happens is, like, as soon as they step foot on there, this dog, Unchained, comes running from the back area of the boat, barking up a storm, and is obviously really hostile towards them. Uh, Stash, again, using, like, talk to animals and animal handling, manages to calm the dog down, but... The dog has obviously, like, caused a ruckus, and if anybody is on this boat, they know something's going on. So the players are like, okay, we gotta split up. How do you and, play uh, a dog that's freaking out at players when they have speak with animals? Do you just go, uh, hey, 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 you, hey, 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 you can't do this, you can't do this, hey, 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 you, hey, hey, you, because that's, like, <laughs> how I imagine, that's what I imagine what my dog is saying when he does that. That was sort of, uh, yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, 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 intruders, 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 intruders. Just like hey, rapid hey, fire. Hey, 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 hey. It's like that Far Side comic where the guy, you know, Professor, what's his name? The scientist finally perfects his animal translation helmet and he puts it on and literally every animal is just going, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> but yeah, it was something like that, like really frantic, really hyperactive, I almost played it, the dog a bit like like a junkie, like really twitchy, like, who the hell are you? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? You gotta, you gotta get off, gotta get off, get off, get off, get off, get off. I'm, I'm protecting this place and you're not even supposed to be here. Get off, get off, get off, get off. I'll hurt you, I'll hurt you, I'll hurt you, you know? And um, 
So Stash like talks him down, calms him down, and uh, the players are like, okay, let's split into two groups. Uh, let's do uh, Stash and Hulka together, and then Maeve and Eric together, and let's just sweep the, the boat really quickly, see how much we can find out, and then get out of here in case somebody's been alerted. And so uh, Stash and Hulka head to the boat's cabin. It's like, it's not a, a super small boat. Think of it sort of like the size of a tugboat. So there's, you know, there's a, enough of a deck, there's a lower deck, and then there's like a cabin. And that's sort of the main layout of a the sloop? boat. Uh, yeah, it's like a sloop. And uh, so Hulka and Stash go like, okay, we're going to, we'll take the cabin. We'll look in, the, we'll search in there. And uh, Eric and Maeve are like, we'll go below decks. And so Eric and Maeve go below decks. And as soon as they open like the hatch to go walk down the a short set of stairs to below decks, they open it up and there's a guy, he's coming up and he's armed because he's been alerted to the fact that there's somebody on the boat. And they immediately just, like, attack him forthright. They don't even talk to him. They don't say anything. Uh, and they attack him. And Maeve just, like, runs him through really quickly in this brutal fashion that left all the players, like, you know, obviously all the players are, are aware of what's happening, even if Hulka and Stash are, are elsewhere. And they don't know as their characters, but... <laughs> It was brutal enough that everybody was like, oh my god, like Maeve is a beast. <laughs> Just dealing out death without a second thought. And that's where this running joke came where it's like, don't let Maeve near the boat. <laughs> She's just gonna pull out her sword and go crazy. Um, so they have a, a fight with this, this like deckhand who they encounter. And Hulga and Stash go into the main cabin and... Uh, I've said it a few times already, but I'll say it again. This is sort of the part of the campaign where I really want to make it clear to the players, like, you're being led around by the nose. Like, you are, you are, somebody, forces beyond your control are absolutely leading you around. You are, you know, hinting, you are pawns in this great game that's going on. And so they go into the cabin and... Inside, it's there's a bunk bed with two bunks. Uh, there's oh, uh, is there know, this, a crazy mystery wall and it's got all their faces on it? It doesn't have all their faces, but there is a map tacked up on the wall in plain sight. A sketch of the river they're on and the coastline bordering the Azure Sea and uh, an area called the Woolly Bay, with a dotted line describing a route down the river to the sea around the East Peninsula northwest along the shore of the coast to the city of Eldred. And it's like, this is where he, this person is going next. And uh, so they just take the map. They, they take it down, roll it up, stuff it in their, in their pack. And uh, I, thought they look you were, I, I thought you were saying that you were going to reveal, like they found the map and it was like their entire journey thus far. And they were like, what? This is well, all that's, been planned. Yeah, well, to, you you got ahead of me because examining oh. the map, there are dots on the map indicating previous places that they have been. Not every place, of course, because some of these things, like when they went to Nyrond, that had nothing to do with the main plot. So it's not like every single place that they've been, but there are enough places that they've been, like Rookroost is on there, that they go like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, this this guy 
he's been following us for way longer than this. He must have, or at least he's been to all the places we've been or a bunch of them. So they start putting it together like this. Whoever this person is, this animal man uh, has been either on their tail or sort of his path is intertwined with them somehow. And uh, they also, there is this big chest. So uh, Stash uh, uses warp wood to break it apart and they look inside and they loot it and they find, you know, a bunch of uh, like scrolls with spells on it and some gold and silver and, and assorted loot. And uh, another thing they also find in the cabin is there's a small... Warpwood sounds like the next level of driftwood. Yeah, warpwood. <laughs> First you drift and then you warp. Liftwood, I mean, sorry. Oh, warpwood. That, damn, Tom, that's a great idea. Mines and Metal Wheels Part 3, they discover warpwood, which, uh, which lets them travel faster than light. No, nah, it's got to be Part 4 because warpwood is the thing that lets them go to where the monsters from the Part 3 that I imagine Oh, no, snap. Yep. Damn. Might have to run these now. Um, so... Uh, the one other thing that they find in this cabin is on the desk, there is a wooden cage and it has a another plague-infected rat. They saw one plague-infected rat in the city earlier uh, that just sort of died in front of them. But this one is alive and uh, Stash decides, I'm going to take it with me. She loves animals and try to cure it. Uh, they Basically, they're like, we can use this rat and try to save its life and see if the cure or the, the vaccine that we're making, the tincture, will work on it. Or maybe we can figure out a way to use the plague wand to cure it. Because they have this theory that the plague wand might be able to cure disease as well as causing it. And that theory is right. I've actually I had found the document uh, where I detailed everything that the plague wand can do. And one of its... Few uh, healing features is superior restoration. There's also an ability on it called Slimy Doom that I thought you'd like. Creature Man, begins think, to bleed uh, uncontrollably. I think, I think Slimy Doom still exists as a subcategory of the Contagion spell in 5e. Yeah, Contagion has blinding sickness, filth fever, flesh rot, mind fire, seizure, or slimy doom. There it is. The, yeah, so so basically uh, the Plague Wand has Contagion and all of those sort of sub-spells and then also Superior Restoration. So it's a Wand of Contagion, but also a Wand of Greater Restoration in 5e. Ah, so it is. it, it can bestow the plague or take it away uh but yeah so they decide we're going to take this this infected rat and we're going to basically use it as our lab rat but with the intent of curing it and see if we can uh, succeed in doing so and stash decides to take it on as like her pet and uh i think i've mentioned in the past, i must have mentioned in the past that stash is familiar the squirrel is named radigan for whatever reason, Cecily just wanted to name the squirrel Ratigan, and so she named the rat Squirrel again. Okay. <laughs> we all had a good laugh over that one. And uh, Eric and Maeve, after dispatching with this deckhand, 
they uh, they just like search the whole the whole hold beneath the ship. Most of it is like food and rations and water and things like that. But they do find a few magic items, including one that they gave to Hulka, and that is the Thunder Scream Glaive, which is a big badass glaive that also does lightning damage. And that became uh, Hulka's awesome. trademark trademark it's better weapon. than a plus three great axe that's screaming all the time <laughs> um indeed but yeah that became hulka's trademark weapon was the thunder scream glaive and so um at this point they had sort of cleared the ship and befriended the dog which stash just started taking on all these animals like as a menagerie Stash is like, we'll keep the dog too. And they decided, you know what? Uh, we've got, like, we've secured this guy's boat. We know he's headed to Eldred. Let's just take the boat. So they decided they're just going to take this guy's boat and go to the next spot on his map and see they if they can intercept him there. And then uh, they'll just take... From there, they'll just take it back to Greyhawk because Greyhawk is right on the water. But do they know how to use a boat? Uh, they don't know extremely well how to use a boat. Uh, Eric, I believe, had some skills that let him sort of pilot it, basically. But the first part of their journey is just going downriver. So for the, with the exception of, like, they just have to steer it a little bit. Yeah, but the I mean, current, they, they've already... They've already uh, boarded Ralph Seaver's ship. They know, they can do an easy one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so they're like, okay, we're just going to take this. We're going to hit up Eldred, and then we're going to head back to Greyhawk with the, with the amulet of healing that we now have. And so this session ended with them cutting the ropes uh, from the harbor and sailing off with Morgarath's, uh, Morgarath's boat. <laughs> Evo. Yeah, that was definitely, uh, there were a couple of, of sort of things that kept happening with this group. One is, uh, as I said, Stash just starts acquiring this menagerie of animals. Every animal she meets, she makes friends with, and then is like, you want to come with us? We got lots of food. And then the other thing is that uh, they keep acquiring vehicles too. Like they already have this big digging machine. And... It was at this point, and now they have a boat, and it was at this point where I was like, oh yeah, maybe we gotta give them like a headquarters where they can put all the stuff that they're acquiring. So yeah. uh, next session, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my solution to that, and then I can, uh, it's, it'll be like two adventures from now where they actually get their headquarters. Um... Yeah, in my cyberpunk game, the guy plays uh, Reverend Rollingstock, the transit cleric. He's always trying to get NPCs to join their shadow running team. He's like, all right, you want to join our team? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody they meet. Tavern time! It's tavern time! I got a couple things for the tavern. Tavern time! I got a couple things for the tavern, as I just said. Uh, you want me to start? Yeah, what you got? Well, I brought 
the official old Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition profiles for two of these wacky old uh, monsters I've been talking about. I got the Bone Weird and the Negative Energy Elemental. Which would you like to hear about first? Bone Weird. All right, Bone Weird. Guess what kind of climate or terrain the Bone Weird is from? Uh, Arid. Any collection of bones. Uh, <laughs> God, I should have known. Frequency is rare. Blah blah. I'll get. I'll. I'll get into it. Oh, it's diet is life force. That's cool. It's chaotic evil. Anyway, a bone weird is a formless creature from the negative energy plane with the ability to inhabit the cast off bones of once living creatures on other planes of existence. When active, it appears as a mass of bones in the shape of a malevolent serpent, uses the skull of some ferocious animal or vicious humanoid, if available, to serve as its own ominous head. While these creatures are very intelligent, it remains doubtful as to whether they have the ab ability to communicate with other creatures. Also, I'll just uh, give you a link here because uh, the picture's damn cool. Love the bone weird. Um, so it's got some cool powers. Until a bone yeah, this thing is really cool. Until a bone weird assumes serpentine form, it is impossible to detect. A detect invisibility spell reveals a strange sim shimmer of peripheral movement, but nothing more definite. Once the bone weird senses living beings within 10 feet, it gathers itself into a bony serpent. The process takes two rounds. Once formed into a serpent, the creature attacks anything within reach. Now... The Bone Weird has two attack strategies to choose from. There's a 50% chance that the creature attempts to knock a victim into the pile of bones where the Bone Weird is based. Opponents hit with this attack take 1d8 points of damage and must attempt saving throws versus paralyzation. Opponents who fail are knocked into the bony heap. Each round spent within the bones automatically inflicts 2d6 points of damage. Under normal circumstances, a successful strength check at minus 2 penalty is required to break free of the bones. The Bone Weird can also choose to attack with a bite for 1d8 points of damage. A successful bite attack requires a saving throw versus death magic. Those who fail the saving throw are subject to the Weird's Bone Subsumption ability. 1d6 bones are torn from the victim's body to meld with the form of the bone weird. Whoa. The bone loss inflicts 4d10 points of damage and requires a system shock roll to avoid death. The bones lost are determined randomly and could be as inconsequential as a pinky bone or as vital as the hip bone. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is so classic return to the tomb of horrors. Oh my god, it got my skull! Honestly, system shock rolls to avoid death are like the fucking theme song to goddamn Return to the Tomb of Horrors. <laughs> Non-magical weapons inflict only one point of damage per attack on bone weirds, and piercing-type weapons inflict no damage. Magical weapons inflict normal damage, save for those of the piercing variety, which only inflict one point of damage. Uh, priestly turning abilities and spells that affect undead have a 25% chance to be effective per use. If such prove efficacious, treat the bone weird as a lich. Bone weirds are unaffected by other spells. 
Uh, Bone Weird reduced to zero hit points is not destroyed, just disrupted. In four turns, the Bone Weird reassembles itself at minus 10 hit points. Uh, uh, at minus 10 hit points, full hit points. I guess minus 10 off of full. Uh, reducing the creature destroys it completely. Habitat or society. Unlike elemental creatures of a similar nature, such as water weirds, bone weirds are never found alone. They always appear in groups of two or more. We'll actually point out that in today's uh, operation, I followed that rule. You always found bone weirds in groups of two. So there was a priest and two bone weirds under the hmm. Omni Lich. Um, it is doubtful that bone weirds are called into existence by mere chance. A wizard or necromancer of powerful ability is most commonly the cause for their appearance. Ecology. A bone weird automatically absorbs the life essence of any creature killed within the weird's heap of bones. The victim's skeletal remains serve to enlarge the bone pile. In the absence of suitable victims, bone weirds can remain quiescent for great lengths of time without suffering. Bone weirds are unable to survive, however, if the supply of available bones falls below an amount which would loosely fill 125 cubic speed of space, uh, five foot cube per bone weird. So that's Those are cool. uh, that's your bone weird. It's good. It's it's classic stuff. It's pretty weird. Then I got the negative elemental. Uh, the negative energy elemental. What what climate or terrain do you think this guy comes from? Uh, the abyss. Negative energy plane. <laughs> Jeez. Just, I oh, just gotta go for the obvious ones. Oh, the dangus. Uh, all right. I'll give you a little link to this one as well. It's not as cool looking, but, you know, we can include it. Negative energy elementals are so named because they are composed of the quote-unquote material of their home, the negative energy plane. They appear as vaguely humanoid sheets of ebony flame, which isn't really what they look like in the picture, uh, when on planes other than their home plane, negative, enemy, uh, negative energy elementals leave death and decay in their wakes. The mere presence of these creatures is anathema to life. Everything within a 30-foot radius of a negative energy elemental is affected as follows. Undead within the area are more difficult to turn. They turn as if two categories higher. All undead regenerate at a rate of two hit points per round. Undead that already have regeneration abilities add two hit points around to their usual rate. Freshly slain living creatures in the area have a 50% chance to spontaneously animate as standard zombies. Healing spells in the area of effect only cure half the hit points rolled, and a supernatural chill inflicts one point of damage per turn to those who do not possess magical protection against cold. When a negative energy elemental attacks, it either forms a humanoid fist to deliver a hammering attack, or it merely <laughs> sweeps over its victim in a midnight wave of death. Ooh, I like that. Midnight wave of death. It's a good metal band name. It's very Return to the Tomb of Horrors. A successful attack inflicts 3d8 points of damage due to cell death, plus the loss of, loss of two levels of experience. God damn. Ooh, that uh, is brutal. 
Their touch also causes up to 1,000 cubic feet, a 10-foot cube of materials derived from organic substances, such as food, parchment, wood, cloth, and the like, to rot and be destroyed. A successful item-saving throw versus acid negates the effect. Because of its close association with the negative energy plane, these creatures are protect particularly susceptible to elemental manifestations. Attacks made by any type of elemental or elemental being against a negative energy elemental gain a plus two attack bonus and plus two points per damage die delivered. Uh, additionally, negative energy elementals save against manifestations of elements such as fireball, lightning bolt, etc. with a minus two penalty. These days they'd have disadvantage. Uh, their habitat and society, the creatures do not leave the negative energy plane by choice, but they can be summoned by the appropriate spells or spell-like abilities. If a summoner of a negative energy elemental loses control of the creature, he or she must immediately make a saving throw a successful saving throw versus death magic or lose 1d4 levels of experience in negative backlash. Holy fuck. Additionally, the e elemental attacks its summoner for three rounds before fading back into the inner plane of its birth. Ecology. When away from the negative e energy... Bleh, when... Oh. When away from the negative energy plane <laughs> longer than a day, a negative energy elemental is forced to consume life force. If it is unable to consume at least 10 hit points or one level each day, the creature returns to its plane of origin. Therefore, if it is difficult for one of these elementals to remain hidden in any area for too long before its appetite gives it away. If a negative energy elemental were to be bound into a magical item in just the proper way, an exceedingly dangerous undertaking, the effects of the negative aura could prove a beneficial item to an evil wizard or necromancer. However, for every month a negative energy elemental remains bound into an item, there is a 5% chance it will burst free. An elemental that finds freedom is uncontrollable afterwards and seeks to slay the creature who bound it until one or the other is dead. Well, damn. Feeds on life force and is also chaotic evil. Not something I'd want to go up against. Man, pretty much nothing in Return to the Tomb of Horrors is something you want to go up against. <laughs> Touche. I still got to read it. I still got to read it. There's, a there's another monster in it um, called Negative Fundamentals which I think are like similar to the negative energy elementals, except they're like little like headless bats made of like void energy. Um, but I couldn't find, uh, I couldn't find the entry on them anywhere online. Huh. I could find a picture of them, but that's about it. Hmm. Wonder what happened there. I gotta so what did you bring? I got I gotta read Return of the Tomb of Horrors. It sounds so much fun. So what I've brought is uh, more strange RPGs, and every time I find some unusual RPGs somewhere, it just like sends me down a rabbit hole where I find more and more. So I'll probably be talking about even more of them on our next uh, next episode. Because there are some really cool, cool ideas out there, man. And uh, the, the current rabbit hole that I've fallen down is just the uh, the free, the zero dollars 
documents on drive through RPG. There's so many of them. Hell yeah. And uh, so I'll start with the one that I found that sort of led me down a rabbit hole uh, of other stuff that I'll talk about on future sessions, or future episodes, rather. And that's the Terrible RPG. You ever heard of the Terrible RPG? I don't think so. So terrible as in you can tear it. Ah, and neat. This is, uh, it's just a single page PDF. It's on drive-thru RPG from Third Act Publishing, and it's free. And it's not so much an RPG as it is a system for RPGs. Like, they don't give you any suggestions as to how to use it. Uh, in the short paragraph on gameplay, it says, uh, the GM establishes the setting, such as fantasy world, space opera, Wild West, and the goal of the scenario for the characters to achieve. The characters will then play out the events of the story. So this is really just like a way to, a system to apply to any kind of RPG that you want to play. And the idea is, uh, each player gets a sheet of paper, they write down their skills, and you could even do this with a D&D character sheet. The idea is... Uh, that when a player uh, does something where it would be a, a skill check would be called for, uh, if they, if they, f sorry, if they fail the action, oh wait, let me just read it out here. Oh, sorry, okay. If they have a skill that would apply to the check, the player must make a tear uh, to their character sheet. And then that tear means they succeed at the action they're attempting. So a tear is when a player must physically remove a piece of their character sheet and throw it away. There are two situations when a character must make a tear. The use of one of their skills or when their character takes damage. When a player uses one of their character's skills, they must tear away part of their character sheet that, conta that contains at least one letter from the skill they're going to use. As an example, if a character is using their swordsmanship skill, they must rip a piece of their character sheet that contains one full letter from the word swordsmanship. Uh, although in practice, it is often difficult to remove only a single letter. When a character takes any kind of damage, physical, mental, or emotional, the GM chooses a skill on their character sheet, and the player must make a tear, removing at least one full letter from that word of the skill. Uh, the tear must always remove at least one full letter from a skill, and it must go from one edge of the paper to another, completely removing a section of the character sheet. So, like, you can go around a corner, and then as you tear, you're creating different edges that you can tear off of as well. When making a tear, no foreign objects can be used. You can't use scissors. You can only use your hands. And it must be done in a continuous rip. You can't reposition your grip on the paper or release it once the tear has begun. And it has to remove a section of paper large enough to cover a template they show on the rules sheet, which is like a one-inch square, I don't think I'd basically. like this game. <laughs> um, <clears throat> as the players progress through the GM scenario, their characters will become weaker from the use of skills and damage they take. When a skill is completely removed from a character sheet, there's no letters left on the paper, they just can't use that skill anymore. If there is at least one full letter of a skill left on the character sheet, they can still use that skill. If they have no skills remaining, 
or they are asked to make a tear and don't have enough paper left on the sheet to cover the template, the character is dead or at the DM's discretion can be knocked out, driven insane or too exhausted to continue depending on what is appropriate for the story. And uh, a couple of other notes here. At any point in the game, a player may choose to crumple their entire remaining character sheet into a ball and toss it at the GM to try and automatically succeed at any skill, even a skill that's not on their character sheet. If the ball of paper hits the GM, they succeed the skill. If the paper misses, they fail. But regardless of the outcome, the player is promptly removed from the game after this action, be it through death, driven insane, exhaustion, or whatever the GM decides. And then finally, a tearing faux pas is when the GM calls for a player to make a tear and the player breaks one of the tearing rules. When this occurs, the player must make another tear in addition to the tearing faux pas they already made. This doesn't sound like the kind of thing you'd you'd use for a campaign. <laughs> no, just... no, it's one of these gimmicky, goofy things. You know, it's funny. You were talking about weird RPGs, and I tried to look for an RPG that I had read online a long time ago. But I couldn't find it because I think it was just in a blog post or something. It was called uh, Normal Guy, the RPG. It had classes like uh, accountant or <laughs> vend vending machine operator. <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to come across that the, the further I dive into uh, drive through RPGs, uh, free RPG documents. I will say that when I played, was it Dungeon Crawl? Uh, I can't remember if it was Dungeon Crawl Classics or I'm maybe confusing it for a different rpg system but it's the one where you have the the f character funnel um where in the first session there's just like you start with all these characters and they all die and you just like keep the ones that don't die right <laughs> see that's kind of cool rpg i think um, terrible rpg could be fun in the right circumstances yeah dungeon crawl classics uh got it character funnel so i played a game um where we just did the opening session and the thing that we did was every time because we had all our characters on cue cards and every time a character died uh we uh burned it in a little candle in the center of the table see that's great i'm down with that what terrible rpg the immediate application that i can think of is uh i was once asked to dm a DD one shot for a guy's bachelor party and it worked great. It was fun. You know, we were playing very loosey-goosey and everybody was getting really drunk as it went on. But uh, that is the kind of thing where it's like, okay, you know, terrible RPG. That's sort of perfect for like a one-time rowdy thing. This reminds me that once upon a time I got a game at Phantom 2 that was like the Baron Von Munchausen game. Yeah, I've heard of like, this one. It's just like a wacky storytelling game and it's basically a drinking game. Sounds good to me. Yeah, I used to play it all the time. Is that all for tonight? No, there's Today? one more. There's one more RPG I want to talk about. Oh, man. And uh, this is from our chums at Bully Pulpit Games. Love it. And it is Night Witches. Have you heard of this one? Uh, is this the one that's about the pilots? 
Yeah. Yeah. So so here's the it's here's pretty the pretty recent, pitch. I think, eh? Yeah. Here's the pitch for it. So there was a night bomber regiment in World War II composed entirely of Soviet air women. These 200 women and girls flying outdated biplanes from open fields near the front lines attacked the invading German forces every night for 1,100 consecutive nights, and when they ran out of bombs, they dropped railroad ties. Uh, to the Germans, they were known as the Nachthexen, the Night Witches. So Night Witches is a tabletop RPG about women at war. As a member of the 588th Night Bomber Regiment, you'll answer the call of your motherland in her darkest hour. Can you do your duty and strike blow after blow against the fascist regime of the Germans? Can you overcome discrimination and sabotage to rise above the sexist comrades? Are there limits to patriotism or endurance? Play Night Witches and find out. It requires three to five players who take turns in the role of Game Master. It can, play, it can be played as a single two-hour session or expanded into a campaign following the regiment across World War II. Uh, and the idea here is in play, you alternate between day and night with unique moves for each. Days are about renewal and interpersonal conflict. Nights are about hair-raising bombing missions on historically accurate targets across the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, Poland and then in the end Germany. Missions are crazy dangerous. You have to make hard choices constantly. And when they end, a whole new kind of danger is waiting back at the airbase. Paranoid secret police, sexist Red Army officials who want you to fail, and chronic supply shortages are just the beginning of your troubles. And uh, I and haven't watched it yet. I'll also say I was wrong. This wasn't recent. This came out like four years ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, relatively recent, I guess. Is this um, Bully Pulp has put out things more recently. Uh, there is, uh, embedded on their site, there's also uh, a Roll20 playthrough that people did. I haven't watched it yet, but I really want to because I just, I like the concept here and I'm a big fan of Bully Pulpit's games, especially ones where it's sort of like GM-free. Everybody takes a turn being the GM. I think that's pretty neat. Uh, also, two two hour runtime for a session. Mm, love it. I think just uh, just last episode, I was mentioning their other game, uh, Durance. That's right, is, uh, in uh, relation to weird RPGs that I was coming across back then, too. Oh, no, it was back when you talked about Hole. Uh, I mentioned right. Durance because it's about penal planets. Anyway, I want to check out Night Witches because it does sound pretty cool. Uh, they also did... Bully Pulpit Games did, I think, After Night, which is maybe they did um, The Warren, which is another, like, uh, Watership Down type bunny game. It's like Burrows. Anyways, this has been episode 71 of Comparing Campaign. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us or follow us, see when we post the updates of new episodes, check us out on Facebook, Comparing Campaign on Facebook. Or if you want to see all the show notes, cool pictures sigils that are also maps of citra arha links to things check us out on a lot Comparing of metal campaign. music on there dot wordpress.com that's our supplemental materials and show notes uh anything else not me level up your characters <laughs>